you, if you will, open your Bibles to Psalm 47. We continue to make our way through portions of the Psalter, and today we look at Psalm 47, which I've simply titled that God is King. And Psalm 47 is attributed to the sons of Korah. It's a portion of the group who were responsible for the nation's worship of God. And so these three psalms, 46, 47, and 48, are often called Songs of Zion, since they focus on the city of Jerusalem, and they celebrate God's protection of it. In our psalm today, this reference is very indirect. We'll see it in verse 5. We'll also see it in verse 8. But most commentators agree that Psalm 47 flows very naturally out of Psalm 46. There is no ancient manuscript that shows them as a singular psalm at any point, but it makes so much sense to have Psalm 47 follow Psalm 46. So as we looked back at Psalm 46 and what we studied last week, that the nation of Israel, the psalmist affirmed that God is our refuge and our strength, our very present help in a time of trouble, Therefore, whom shall we fear? Because he is our refuge, he's the safe place that we can go, because he is our strength, giving to us the ability to endure whatever difficulty or hardship we might face in our lives. They celebrated this victory that God had given them over one of their enemies, and there's not certainty as to which part of Israel's history this most directly fit with. But what we do know, that it was an unexpected victory, an overwhelming victory, and it was a victory that made it very, very clear to them that God was working on their behalf. And so they celebrated his victory over the enemy that was was encamped around them, or that was on their doorstep, on the verge of overtaking them. And they say, he says later in the psalm that God makes wars to cease. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. And so because God has done all of this on behalf of the nation of Israel, the, verse, or the psalm concludes with verse 46.10, and God speaking says, Cease striving or be still and know that I am God. God says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And so this is God's statement to help settle the fear that was very naturally in the hearts of his people as they faced overwhelming consequences or obstacles or odds in their life is to remember they don't need to fear because they are his and he is theirs. And God affirms that I will be exalted in the earth. So this verse is a source of comfort for the believer because it affirms his sovereign rule over the world that he has created. Have you ever had a fleeting thought? Have you ever had a moment where you wondered, where is God? What is God doing? How is God in control? I certainly don't see it. If things don't change, I don't know what's going to come of this. But these are why God has written these words for us, is to help anchor us in the reality that He is sovereign. He rules over this world. And it becomes for us a source of comfort. Now, this very same verse is also a warning to the unbeliever. Be very clear to this. It is a warning to the unbeliever because what it says is the enemies of God cannot stand against him. They will not be victorious against him. They will never, ever be able to depose him from his throne. 
God is sovereign. God rules over the world that he has created. And there isn't anybody, there isn't any world power that can ever change that. So as a believer, we are to take great comfort in the sovereign rule of God. But as an unbeliever, you need to recognize that you stand as an enemy of God and you don't have a hope and a prayer of defeating this great God that has revealed himself to the nation of Israel. So this victory that Israel has just experienced is most apparent in the minds and in the hearts of the nation of Israel. As God has defeated their enemy, it is affirmed that he is sovereignly ruling over them. And so now Psalm 47 continues from Psalm 46 as a praise of God's victory on, all, on their behalf. And it is a call to the people of God and of all nations to praise him. Read with me now in Psalm 47, verses 1 through 9. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This psalm is most succinctly a call to praise God. Why? Because he is the king. There is nothing that can ever change that reality. And so the entirety of this psalm is a call to praise God. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. This call is to Everyone, you'll notice here that it says all peoples, all peoples. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. All peoples is often understood to mean all nations. Every single one of them. There is no exemption. There is not an exemption. All peoples are to praise God because he is the king. This will develop a little bit more obviously as we go through the psalm. But this is not only a call to the nation of Israel to praise God, but it is a call that is extended to every nation and to every person that has ever existed within the world. Now, there's two ways that are mentioned and how the nation of Israel and peoples everywhere are to praise him. The first one is clapping. You know, in many, many churches, clapping is taboo. We clapping? Oh, why are we clapping? Ooh, are we are we charismatic? Are, are we losing our senses? Have we lost control? What is wrong with you that you want to clap in the worship of God? We often applaud others as a sign of support or appreciation or approval. And when someone of great import of great importance is introduced, people will often clap as a sign. Of praise, You know, when the president enters into the hall of Congress and they say, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, oh, the president, oh, we praise him, we support him, we love him. He's wonderful. That's what people say 
when they clap, whether they really believe that or not. But clapping is this expression of praise and of joy that is to be a part of the worship of God. The second example here is shouting. Shouting or excited verbal utterances are also signs of praise. Now, if you look at the average worship service in the average church in America today, I would venture to say there is very little, if any, clapping, and there is no shouting of any kind. Why? Well, you know, we put on our Sunday best, and we've come into church, and we sit down, and, and we kind of mumble through the songs. Oh, I know that song. Oh, yeah, that's what am I doing the rest of the day? We are so far from having an understanding of and appreciation for the importance of praising God that we often sit in a worship service, lifeless, exist. we're just singing about some inanimate object. Not a great king, not a great God, not somebody who is worthy or deserving of our praise, but this clapping and the shouting, this joyful exuberance, it was a part of the worship of Israel, which to us today sound out of control and chaotic and certainly not proper for such a distinguished group of people like me. And so we sit on our hands and we cover our mouths and we just blindly walk through worship as if it's just something unrelated to us and our experience. I want to tell you this, and I've heard people say this, you know, the worship of God, yeah, I get that, but it's just really not my thing. You don't sing the songs I like. You don't have all the instruments I prefer. There's so many songs I would like you to sing. So I'm just going to kind of go through the motions and sit here as if it's an unwanted obligation in my life to endure the boredom of 15 or 20 minutes of singing. I want to ask you this question. What does that say about our recognition of the praiseworthiness of the king? You know, I love the fact that in every church I've ever been in, There is always at least one person who can't sing for their life. But brother, you can hear him anywhere you are. Perry, you are that man. Perry doesn't care if he's off key. He doesn't care if he's tone deaf. My father-in-law, bless his heart, can't sing to save his life. But that will not stop him from praising God. Why? Because he loves him. Because God is king and he wants to do what is right as it flows from the life of a believer is to worship him and to praise him with a shout, with a clap, or at least with an exuberant voice that says, you are worthy and I want to acknowledge that today. So why does the psalmist call upon all peoples to praise him? Well, number one, because of who he is. Verse 2a, for the Lord Most High is to be feared. Now that phrase there, the Lord Most High, is one of the titles for Yahweh that is an all-inclusive title. It encompasses all of God's attributes and it encompasses all of God's actions on behalf of His people. Here, the focus is not so much on the attributes or His actions, but on his unique position 
as the Lord Most High. He is not just a little g God. He is the God. He is the God Almighty. He is the one and only real and true God. And there is none other like Him. So what the psalmist tells us is that He is to be feared because He is the Lord Almighty. You know, I looked a little bit in my study, and there's a lot of talk about idolatry, especially in the ancient, uh, the ancient cultures of the day. And so you take something like this. You take something like this wood here. And Greg would appreciate this. You take this piece of wood, a log, whatever you have, and you can fashion it into something that is beautiful, or you could chop it up and throw it into the fire to be burned. And so what is common within many of the cultures of ancient days, and what is common in our lives in a different element, is very simply this. We take this common element, wood or stone or something, and we carve it into, fashion it into looking like something, and we bow down before it and we worship it. And we, we assign to it a name. We assign to it some kind of power. But on the other hand, we take that same product and we could crush it up and put it in our garden as a part of a decoration. Or we could throw it into the fire to make some heat because we're cold. So the psalmist is calling on all people, most especially the nation of Israel, to praise Him because of who He is. He is the one true God. And you need to underline this in your heart and in your mind. He is To be feared. Now, for the believer, it means something different. There's two ways we can understand this. For the believer, we should have a fear of God that is expressed in reverent awe towards Him. You know, the Jews had a reverent fear of God in such a way that when they wrote out their Old Testament, they would never write out the name of God. What they would do is they would simply make what would look like to you and I a check mark. It might have a, a Y or some Hebrew part of the alphabet with a long check mark. And you looked at that and you said, oh, that, that stands for God. And there is such a fear and a reverent awe about God that I don't even want to write His name. And so for believers... We are to have a reverent awe of who God is, and this is how we express fear towards God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the idea expressed in this proverb is that we are, have, we are to have a reverential submission to God, to His Word, to His desires, to His plans, Because He is God. The one who possesses all truth and all wisdom. The one who despises wisdom does not have a fear of the Lord and is, in contrast, a fool. Hebrews 12.28 Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence And all. You know what he's saying? The life that I live is to be lived with a reverent awe expressed in some fashion as fear because of who God is. He is so unlike me. He is so deserving of all that I have to give. And so I am going to walk with him, live my life before him in reverence because of who he is. 
Now, that's what this fear of God means for the believer, but for the unbeliever, the fear of the Lord is something entirely different. For the unbeliever, for the one who has not entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the fear of the unbeliever is judgment. You see, the fear of the Lord is the impending judgment that awaits all of us, but for the unbeliever who hasn't been washed in the blood, who hasn't been covered by the sacrifice of Christ, you stand alone and naked before God, and all you have to offer is who you are. I'm going to tell you, you will not measure up. You see, God's standard is perfection. God's standard is His own holiness and His own righteousness. Well, how do you and I stand up to that? Because God has given us the holiness and the righteousness of Christ through our faith in Him, and we stand before God clean as a whistle, made acceptable, able to stand in His presence. But this is not true for the unbeliever. Hebrews 12.29 says this, For our God is a consuming fire. Do you know what that means, don't you? A consuming fire burns absolutely everything. Nothing is spared. You know, there are certain temperatures by which metals are refined. There are certain temperatures by which concrete can be consumed. There are certain temperatures that we would have an incredibly difficult time ever reaching. It takes incredible machinery to do that. But because God is the consuming fire, He's going to come in judgment and He will utterly destroy everything that stands opposed to Him that would be considered an enemy of His that has not been covered by the blood of the Lamb. You see, if you don't know who Jesus Christ is as a personal Lord and Savior, you need to fear the Lord. If you have an intellectual appreciation for the idea of God or the concept of a, of a divine being, but have not yet reconciled who Jesus is and the grand scheme of things, you better fear the Lord. So, this consuming fire speaks directly to those who are the enemies of God, who will not stand in His judgment. And so the psalmist calls upon us to praise Him Because of who he is. He is to be feared. He is the great king. That's what verse 2b says. A great king over all the earth. He's not just a king. But he is a great king. There is no king like him. You know, I haven't done a historical study of all the kings that have ever ruled in all the world. But I can tell you this. I believe it was Aristotle who said this, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And virtually every king has been corrupted by the power that has been given to them. And they do the unspeakable, the unthinkable, and they become all about themselves. And they aren't about the people that they rule over. But this is not who we're talking about. He's not like an earthly king. He is a great king. But he's not just Israel's king. He is king over all the earth. Meaning he is king over all nations, all peoples, everywhere, throughout all of history. He is the creator of the universe. He spoke it into existence with his words. He sustains it with his power. And he rules over it from his throne in heaven. 
Now, while the vast majority of the world praises a little g God of some kind, they do not praise the great king, the king Yahweh, the king Jesus. And for these people, the judgment of God is going to be a terribly sad day. And I will absolutely say with absolute certainty that they will wish they feared the Lord with a reverent awe before their life expired. Because when you breathe your last, you will be instantly ushered into the presence of God and you will give an account for your life, either covered by Jesus or not. As Paul said in his prayer, you will either live or you will die. Living eternally in God's presence or dying in separation from God in a literal place called hell, For all of eternity. So there is a call to praise God because of who he is. But number two, because of what he has done. Because he is the great king, he possesses great power. Power like the world has never seen before. Now this psalm does not directly identify with a messianic psalm. Nor does it speak to something eschatological in its nature, but it isn't difficult to make very real spiritual application in our lives related to what God has done for the nation of Israel. So I'll kind of remind us of that as we go through this. So the call to praise because what God has done, the psalmist identifies that number one, or he delivers us. Verse three, he subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. You see, for the nation of Israel, and most especially in this era of history, it was not unfathomable for some other country to develop some kind of amazing military power and to come upon you and destroy you and take you away, kill you, take all that you own for spoil. But here the psalmist identifies in the very recent history, of the victory that God has won on their behalf. But this is also a look backwards at at God's continual victories on behalf of the nation of Israel. Beginning with the defeat of the nation of Egypt, thinking about Egypt was the most powerful civilization of the time. Pharaoh was the most powerful man of the time. And God raises up Moses... To demand that the Pharaoh let his people go. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. So God brings about ten plagues that bring about the release of the nation of Israel from Egypt's slavery. And I want to tell you this. Moses could have never accomplished that. He had zero power. He had zero influence. influence. He had no way of bringing about the release of God's people, but God sent the plagues. And as they left And as the powerful Egyptian army began to chase them, they were fronted by the Red Sea with no place to go, with death behind them. And what did God do? God parted the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry land. And after they had all made it safely onto the other side, and the Egyptian army was in the middle of the Red Sea, God let the waters recede and destroy the entirety of Of the Egyptian army. Well, you know, that sounds like a lot of hooey. That sounds like a a really impressive Hollywood fable. Well, that's your prerogative to believe. But I'll tell you, I believe in a great king. And a great king that has great power. A king that has the ability to do the unthinkable. Because nothing is impossible with God. In many of the battles that the nation of Israel was to fight. They were massive underdogs on paper. 
But God was not written in on the paper. And God overwhelmingly won the battles on their behalf against overwhelming odds because He is the great King that possesses great power. And because of that, Israel was victorious. And the psalmist proclaims that He subdues peoples under us. And destroys nations. Now this deliverance that the nation of Israel knew was very literal and very physical. But for us, it isn't that way. For us, the deliverance is spiritual. God has defeated the great enemy Satan and has rescued us from his powerful evil rule. If you don't think that Satan is a powerful entity... You have been seriously deceived by Satan himself because he doesn't want us to see him for who he really is. He appears as an angel of light, right? He walks around the earth like a a wolf in sheep's clothing, seeking whom he may devour. But God has rescued us from this great enemy. It says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness, the domain of the, the dominion, the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for forgiveness of sin. God did for us and our spiritual deliverance what we could never do for ourselves. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how honest you are. It doesn't matter how kind you are. It doesn't matter how generous you are. We cannot be good enough to secure our own deliverance. Deliverance only comes through the cross. Forgiveness only comes through our faith in Christ on the cross. So he delivers us. Next, he provides for us. Verse 4. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob whom he loves. So in the choosing of the inheritance for the nation of Israel, this again looks backwards at the conquered land that had now been divided amongst the twelve tribes of Israel as a part of the inheritance that God was giving to them, a place where they would live forever and forever. So this land was a place for Israel to live under the rule and under the provision of God. This inheritance is described as the glory of Jacob, the one whom God loves. So the love of God is the reason that he gave the inheritance to the nation of Israel. But we don't know the love of God through the physical inheritance of anything material. We know the love of God because of a spiritual inheritance. We know the love of God because God sent Jesus to the cross to die in our place. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. The Son of God to make friendly the enemy of God. Bringing us into His household. Making us His children. Enabling us to call God our Father with the promise and the inheritance of a spiritual reality in heaven. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. A spiritual blessing, a spiritual inheritance, a spiritual deliverance. Our inheritance is our spiritual position within the family of God with Christ our Savior and our brother and our Lord and our groom.
So the way that God has ruled over Israel in protecting them and in providing for them is an example to all the surrounding nations as to why they should praise the great king because he would do the same thing for them. Today, all nations should praise him because he has provided a spiritual inheritance for them through Jesus, the atoning sacrifice, which has the ability to make all of mankind acceptable to him. So we praise him because of who he is. We praise him because of what he has done. Number three, we praise him because he is victorious. Verse five, God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And so what we see here, the mention of an ascending with a shout and with a trumpet is probably related to the idea that the Israelites had that God descended from heaven and he came down in some shadowy figure and he acted on their behalf, securing victory for them. And then when that was completed, he would ascend back into heaven. So it is this idea that God has descended and as God is now Excuse me, God has descended, and now as God has ascended back into heaven, the people are shouting that joyful clapping and the exuberant voices and the sound of a trumpet because they were celebrating the victory that God had given to them. Sometimes in battle, the nation of Israel, in a celebratory festival, would march the Ark of the Covenant and a formal procession through the streets, and they would lead the Ark of the Covenant back into the tabernacle or back into the temple, which represented the dwelling place of God amongst men. And as they did that, they would shout with joy. They would sound the trumpets as a way of celebrating God's victory as God ascended back to the place where he resided. These celebrations were often filled with joyful exuberance and there was a festive atmosphere and it was an experience like the people had never seen before. I don't know that we have a lot to compare this to other than something like a ticker tape parade in New York City or some kind of a parade when the favorite sports team, the local sports teams, win the championship. And thousands of people pour into the streets, and they've closed off traffic, and they're throwing confetti from the high-rises, and the people are jumping and shouting, and there is just great joy. And this is what is taking place within the nation of Israel, celebrating the victory that God has given to them in the defeat of their enemy. So we see God's victory in our lives As a personal one and as a spiritual one, God is victorious in setting us free from the bondage of sin, from the consequence of sin, and from the power of sin. We read in Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Who wants to be a slave? I don't know anybody that wants to be a slave. Who wants to be a slave to sin? I don't know anybody that wants to be a slave to sin. Well, we don't have to be because God has given us the victory. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So if the Son makes you free, 
you will be free indeed. And so in my estimation, when the body of Christ gathers together to worship Him, we should be celebrating the spiritual deliverance that God has given to us and what He has done and because of who He is. Our hearts should be overflowing with joy that we have an opportunity to gather together with other people who think like us, believe like us, and love like us, and celebrate the great King. But, sadly, people find so many other things that are more worthwhile for their time. Something really good on TV that my DVR somehow can't record. Some super-duper sale that might not ever, ever come again. The most beautiful day in all the world to go out to the golf course and golf. This most comfortable Sleep number bed that I just can't get out of. God understands. There's so many Sundays left in my life to go and worship. What does that say about the affection we have for the great king who has delivered us? Well, so far in the psalm, the call to praise God has been based upon the localized experience of the nation of Israel and his particular rule over them. And now the focus will shift a little bit and it's going to extend beyond Israel into all the world. And so there is a second very, ex- very explicit call to praise God. Verse 6, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. What do you think the psalmist wants the people of God to do? Gee, I don't know. Isn't that kind of optional? Can I kind of mumble that in my car? I don't know. I don't like to sing out loud. When you see this four times in one verse, and I think it's called out 11 times in the entirety of the psalm, and we understand that this is not just some guy from... 3,000 years ago that we would never know or never meet. This is God speaking through His servant, telling us to praise Him, to praise Him, to sing praises to Him, to praise Him. Why? Because He is the great King. We are to praise Him because He is King. Verse 7, For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm or song, a synonymous term there. So his being king of all the earth is again repeated here that we initially saw in verse 2. But here we will see the focus of this reality placed upon all peoples. Why? Because he reigns over all. Verse 8a, God reigns over the nations. He's not just an abstract God. He's not just the local God of the nation of Israel. He's not just the God over the region of the Middle East. He is the King over all the nations. And so the psalmist makes it very clear to us that the Lord Most High is the King, the King of everything, the King of everyone, the King of all of the world. So the reign of God over the world is very, very real, even though most nations, including our own, don't don't willingly recognize it or even respond to it properly. We can have the most powerful military in all the world. We can be the most prosperous people in all the world. We can be the most technologically advanced people in all the world. But all that man has and all that man will ever achieve will never, ever replace the reality that God and God alone reigns over all the world. 
Man may decide that he doesn't want God, but God still reigns. Man may decide that he doesn't need God, but God still reigns. Man may decide that God doesn't even exist, but God still reigns. That will never, ever change. Because that is true, we are to praise Him. Because not only is that true about God, what does that make true about us, His children? We will reign with the King of Kings for all of eternity, and nothing can change it. We continue through the psalm. He rules from heaven. Verse 8b. God sits on His holy throne. So in verse 6, we see that God has ascended. And here we see where God has ascended to, to His holy throne. Holy throne making it a spiritual throne, a perfect throne, a throne that rules over the entirety of the world that God has created. He carries out His rule or His reign from heaven above, seeing all that is taking place in our world and acting as He desires to accomplish His plans and His purposes in nations and in individual people. Now, this is one of those hard things for us to really grasp is that God rules from heaven above. He sees everything that is going on. He's not too busy. He's not distracted. He's not disinterested. God sees it all, and He intervenes as He desires to accomplish His plans and His purposes in this world that He has created. He works in ways that man does not expect. God will often make the weak strong, and He will often make the strong weak. Think about this. Egypt was once a great world power, but today, Egypt is very weak. Babylon was once mighty, but its territory has been divided, and even the discovery of oil in that area of the world has not restored it or the surrounding nations to a dominant position in the world. They're a threat. They're always trying to find some nuclear capability so they can wreak havoc, but they've not reached the capability of doing that. Greece and Rome were once wonders of mankind, and they are now shadows of their former glory. Think about the Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc, which dominated the eastern half of Europe, and all the rest of that continent was once one of the most feared civilizations of our era, and it has disbanded and fallen apart. Even the United States of America, though now it is at the very pinnacle of world power, we are not immune to God's work of judgment. We can be made weak as God sits on His throne in heaven and determines to accomplish His plans and His purposes and the world that He created. And you and I might be part of what God desires to do in our world, in our country in our community. Today, for us and for most of the world, it would be absolutely unthinkable that the United States could be reduced to an insignificant part of the world's knowledge and history and power and influence. Can you think about it? Have you ever imagined that the United States could be like Ethiopia, having no influence in all of the world. We could be laid low. We could experience a depression like the world has, or like we have never known or never experienced before. 
He said God reigns and He rules and He does what He desires to accomplish His plans and His purposes. He's to be feared because He is the Most High God. He is the one who reigns and rules over this world. So this call to praise the great King is a call to acknowledge who He is. It is to worship Him because of what He has done. It is to live our lives before Him in obedience and submission, desiring to honor Him as the great King that He is. You know, this lesson was never fully learned in the lives of the nation of Israel. They were constantly disciplined for their idolatry. God would accomplish something great on their behalf. They would enjoy a tremendous time of plenty. And they would rebel against the Lord and He would discipline them. And they would be raised back up and then they would rebel and He would discipline them. This continued over and over and over until the northern kingdom and Judea fell. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, Israel lived under foreign dominance. In Jesus' day, they lived under, under Roman oppression. And oh, by the way, it wasn't until 1948 that they were reestablished in their statehood. Israel today is a small fraction of what they were. They inhabit an incredibly small percentage of the land that God had given them. Why? Because they had rejected God, His rule in their life. They rejected the Messiah, their Messiah that God had sent to them. And they continue to live their lives under constant threat and turmoil and distress. But God not only rules over the nations from heaven... He rules over the individual lives of every person in this world, whether they recognize it or not. That means you, and that means me. God is the one who rules. Lastly, He will be worshipped by all. Now, this is the only part that is most specifically forward-thinking. Some commentators call this prophetic. It is what it is. But this is something that has not yet happened. But it will one day happen, and we read this in verse 9. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So the worldwide impact of the gospel is what is in view here. And this is expressed through God's covenant with Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Here's what it says. Now the Lord God said, excuse me, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this covenant that God made with Abram, Abraham, was a forward-looking view of the impact of the gospel worldwide through the coming of the Messiah that was birthed in the covenant that God made with Abraham, was more realized through the formation of the nation of Israel with their release from the bondage of Egypt, which was consummated in the coming of the one and only Son who died on the cross. And we look forward to that being realized when Jesus comes again to take His church home. So this is a forward-looking view of what would become the end point of all of, hist of all of history, and that is all peoples, all nations, bowing down before God and singing praise to Him. 
This is what God has done. This is what God is doing. He is building Christ's spiritual kingdom with people from all nations and all races. Revelation 5.9 And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. When God creates the new heaven and the new earth, all those who know the Father through Jesus Christ the Lord will live under His sovereign rule in the new Eden that God will provide. What do we do until then? Well, we praise Him. Because of who He is and because of what He's done. We submit to Him. We obey Him. We serve Him. We look forward with great expectation to His eventual coming when our salvation will be fully consummated and we will be ushered into the eternal presence of God in all of our glory given to us by Christ to see Him as He really is. You know, it's easy for us to think about God on, on the grand national scheme or maybe even on the world scheme. And yeah, God theoretically rules everything because He created it. But you know, God rules over you and I. Very, very specifically. And when we aren't acknowledging that, intentionally we're living like fools. And there's a lot that we can learn from the nation of Israel. Our idolatry with materialism or popularity or something else that we believe the world has to offer that would make our lives significantly better. We take those substitutes into our lives and we reduce God to something other than who He is, forgetting what He has done, and we risk the loving, disciplining hand of God in our lives. But He rules over us individually, which means you and I will stand before Him and give an account of our life. We will either plead the blood of Christ, thanking God for His mercy, or we will come up with some list of good things, hoping it's enough. It's not. Don't fool yourself. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for what we can learn from Your Word. We thank You for what we can learn from the way You've acted in the history of Israel, Your people. We thank You that we have been grafted into the family of God through the cross. We thank You for the promises that You've made to us through Christ. Father, we thank You that we don't have to fear any obstacle, any enemy, any difficulty because You are with us. You're our refuge and our strength. And we know, Father, that You desire to be exalted in our lives. And I pray that we would allow that to happen. And the result would be that we would just continually sing praises to You. Because You are the great King. The great King that has loved me enough to send Jesus to die in my place. Father, we give You thanks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.